When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we report on the destruction of the Novohachova Dam on the Dnipro River in Kherson. We look at the impacts on the land, the people, and of course, the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. I also speak to Volodymyr Kadigrov, founder of the Seeds for Ukraine initiative, who's helping families and farmers in the liberated territories rebuild their lives. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 6th of June, one year and 102 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Dernley, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, Ukrainian journalist Tatiana Bezruk, and our foreign reporter, Maidna Nanu. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thank you, David. As you say, a huge story broke overnight and we've just been absorbing its impact and implications this morning. The Novokovka dam in southern Ukraine has been destroyed in what some are calling the largest man-made disaster in Europe since Chernobyl in 1986. We understand that this vast Soviet-era dam in the Russian-controlled part of the country was blown up at around 2.50am in the morning local time, unleashing a flood of water across the war zone. Something, I should say, that's been reported by both Ukrainian and Russian forces this morning, putting more than 80 settlements and 16,000 people in immediate danger. President Zelensky has called security advisers together for an emergency meeting, and we understand that evacuations are already underway. Earlier videos on social media showed a series of intense explosions around the dam and other clips show water surging through its remains with bystanders expressing their shock and more recent ones that I've just been looking at show these affected settlements flooded 
the countryside half submerged and already of course thousands of animals have been drowned we haven't heard of any human casualties yet but of course we this is a breaking story and it's just too early to say what the impact of this has been this dam is truly enormous it is 3.2 kilometers long and holds 18 cubic kilometers of water that's equal to that in the great salt lake in the u.s state of utah people are saying it will take four days for it to empty completely and authorities in Kherson, some 80 kilometers downstream, are predicting that the water levels will reach critical point in the next five hours or so. So I recommend that listeners follow our live blog because we will be reporting on that as news comes in. Both sides are blaming the other for the destruction of the dam, but the vast majority of reliable sources believe that Russia is responsible. The EU has already accused Russia of barbaric aggression as a consequence of the attack. Zelensky warned back in October that the Russians had mined the dam and had called for international observers. And we discussed the danger of such an attack several months ago. But this morning, many are arguing that clearly there has been a failure of the international community here to make it clear that they were observing the dam and what the consequences would be if it was destroyed and they're saying that because those red lines were not drawn that it made it capable made it possible for Russia to do this indeed Ukraine's military intelligence are saying Russian forces blew up the dam in a panic calling it an obvious act of terrorism and a war crime which will be evidence in an international tribunal. Now, the timing of this is, of course, significant. Analysts this morning are saying that further to the potential impacts on agriculture and the environment, which will be catastrophic, the flooding could prevent further Ukrainian advances in the south and threaten the safety of Europe's largest nuclear power plant at Zaporizhia, which I'll come to in a moment. This flooding will theoretically delay the Ukrainian army from fording the river and crossing to the left bank, which many theorised was potentially part of the Ukrainian strategy for the counteroffensive. Now, we also understand that the Kharkovka hydroelectric power plant in Russian-occupied territory has been deployed completely as well and cannot be restored after a detonation inside the engine room. That's according to Ukraine's state hydroelectric company. Again, this is leading some to speculate this morning that Russia is seeking to destroy utilities in danger of being targeted or attacked during any counteroffensive. Now, I said I'd talk about the nuclear power plant. So Ukraine's state atomic power agency has said the destruction of the dam does pose a threat but that the situation in the facility is currently under control i'll read a quote from them water from the reservoir is necessary for the station to receive power for turbine capacitors and safety systems of the plant right now the station's cooling pond is full as of 8 a.m the water level is 16.6 meters which is sufficient for the station's needs now the un atomic energy agency has also said that its experts are closely monitoring the situation and that there is no immediate nuclear safety risk at the facility. But according to the Ukraine War Environmental Consequences Working Group, a total collapse in the dam would wash away much of the left bank and cause a severe drop in the reservoir, which could potentially have a major impact on crucial cooling at the plant. But as I say, that doesn't seem to be an immediate danger this morning. Nonetheless, 
Another of the consequences of this attack is that it will lead to reassessments of just how far Russia will be willing to go in this war. And we theorised some time ago whether they would be willing to trigger a nuclear incident in Zaporizhia if they felt it gave them a strategic advantage. Many are now saying this morning that this is strategically feasible. And just lastly, the other major impact of this being discussed this morning is on Crimea, although of course there are different views on this. The Russian-backed governor has said that there is a risk that water levels in the North Crimea Canal, which carries fresh water to the peninsula from the Dnipro River, could fall after a blast at the dam. The canal was blocked by Ukraine after Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, but the and that led to acute water shortages on the peninsula that only ended after Russian forces seized the canal in March last year. Others, however, are saying that in reality, Russia is already capable of supplying Crimea with water and supplies if required. So that's where we are, David, as of 1pm London time. But this is a very fast moving story. So inevitably, there will be a lot of developments over the next few hours. Thank you very much, Francis. I believe we do have Tetiana Bezruk on the line joining us from Ukraine. Um, Could you talk us through a little bit what the reaction in Ukraine has been like? And uh, I understand you're from the region itself. Could you talk about about the region affected? Well, I woke up today morning because a friend of mine called me and told that the Kachovka Dam is damaged. Then I was trying to get some news and was trying to call to my relatives who are on the occupied left bank of Kherson region. And then what I what I saw was like, actually, I can't still believe that it's true because I was born and raised not far from that place. And I crossed this dam like a thousand times when I was a child and a student. You know, this like... Kherson region is a region with a lot of fields, farmers. The water in this region is pretty important for harvest. I'm trying to get also some news because I'm not on the front line right now. And I saw a lot of initiatives inside Ukraine. People are trying try to help to help to evacuate people and animals from the area. Thanks, Tatiana. How how would you describe the 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 mood in in amongst you and your friends from hearing this news it sounds certainly in london it was total shock when we woke up and saw what had happened what what have you what have you seen amongst your your colleagues like everyone also shocked because like we saw a lot what russia did in occupied territories yeah but how can one imagine even that they will damage the the Kahoka Dam because it's there for like for a half of century. <laughs> it's it's important not only like for our history, it's important for citizens of Ukraine, like for the Parisian nuclear power plant. And um, everyone was shocked, but if you may saw for the last ten years Ukrainians are very organized and now I am and my colleagues are trying to get to the cities where people will be evacuated. I saw different volunteer organizations who are trying to evacuate people to provide them with humanitarian aid, humanitarian and legal assistance. We are all shocked, but it's our country and we should help people who are now in, a, in this situation. Francis mentioned earlier some of the potential future impacts of this astonishing, awful news. How do you think in the days and weeks to come this will impact Ukraine, but but also the war itself? 
it's already impacted Ukraine because people lost their homes, not even like because of shelling. Like I saw those pictures and videos where the wall house was like moving on the river on the top of the water. And as I also mentioned, people lost their houses physically. <laughs> They do not, do not have even where to hide. And as the Minister of Interior Affairs of Ukraine uh, wrote that Russia is continuously shelling on the right bank, even after this Kahovka Dam damage. Thank you very much, Tatiana. Francis and Roland, do you have any questions for Tatiana? Or Roland, shall we go to your reaction to the news this morning? Hello, David. Hello, Tatiana. Yes, I mean, it, 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 it's fascinating to hear from somebody, you know, with such a connection to, to that part of the world. I've been on the phone to some of my contacts in Kherson today, and it's, it's, it's a mixed picture. And interestingly to me, the, the, the general attitude from the people I've spoken to is one of stoicism. So I was speaking to a woman in Kherson this morning who said, you know, look, the, the people who remain in this city are now used to dealing with with difficult situations. We get shelled a lot. Many people have already left. It's a kind of self-selecting population that's still there. And she made the point, actually, that this has been... Everybody has been aware of this danger for for some time. So if you remember back in October, I think President Zelensky publicly accused the Russians of, of plotting to do something like this. And at the time, actually, Ukrainian media ran kind of analyses of what it would look like. Maps have been distributed. There were plans in place. People kind of knew which areas of, of Kherson City, at least, were, were in danger of flooding. And the message I was getting, at least from the, 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 the three or four people I've spoken to this morning, was that, you know, people kind of understood where the areas of threat were and started moving out, you know, fairly quickly. And, and it sounded to me... Like, not much panic. I was speaking to an ambulance driver who was also involved in evacuations from a village just to the east, up just upstream from Herson, who said, you know, look, the water is... To give you an idea of how fast the water is rising, they were driving out there early in the morning, so probably around six years. There was already water around in the fields and beginning to cross the roads, but they could drive through. On the way back, after picking up a couple of elderly people who were unable to move themselves, they had to find other roads because the roads they used were already flooded, inundated, um, impassable. That said, her account of, of, of the atmosphere in that village was people kind of watching, taking photos of the water, trying to decide what to do. A lot of them had already done kind of one or two trips out with their own cars, kind of taking people out and coming back in, working out what to, to do with their stuff. That's not everywhere. There are parts of Herson City, particularly lower down, closer to the bank, because Herson itself is built, you know, quite on an elevation. But there are neighbourhoods lower down, closer to the bank, that are being flooded right now. But it is the left bank. Everyone I've spoken to is raising, is saying, look, the real problem is on the left bank. And all along the Dnieper, actually, the left bank is basically the lower bank. It is much lower lying. And one woman I was speaking to said she she just got off the phone to her uncle who lives on that side under under Russian occupation. And he was saying, look, you know, I asked her, look, did, did he get any warning? You know, if the Russians did this, did they did they bother to kind of tell people, look, you better evacuate because we're going to do this? He said, no, nothing. He woke up in the morning, tuned into Ukrainian media. That was how he found out what was going on. And he, he, he had basically had to walk to safety before the floodwaters reached his home. So it's going to be it's going to be much, much worse, I think, simply because of the geography on that left-hand side of the bank. Thanks very much, Roland. Tatiana, 
is what Roland was reporting there from what he's hearing from Hassan and some of his contacts, does that line up with what you're hearing as well or are there any differences? A friend of mine who are like uh, working in a volunteer organization, they are now hiring to um, to person for people's evacuation. Yeah, and not only for people, but also for their animals. The situation is pretty clear described by Roland. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tatiana. Roland, can I come back to you? Can I pose you the same question that I did to Tatiana, in fact? I mean, this is obviously very, very early on. It's a huge breaking story from early this morning. But if we were to look ahead over the days and weeks to come, months even, how do you think this will impact the war itself? Well, look, let's start with the immediate, the immediate impact. And we have varying estimates, quite wildly varying estimates, of how far the water is going to rise and when it will peak. So one one of the residents of her son I was speaking to earlier today said that her understanding, what she'd been told or, or heard from the authorities or public announcements was the water is going to rise for three days. Other people are saying it's going to reach critical period, uh, the worst point within, within 10 hours. There are old Soviet estimates because the Soviets game planned this. You know, what happens if the dam failed? They built it and they said, you know, you're going to, you're going to see the water rising or, or the flood is not going to recede, I think was their estimate, for a week. So at least for, you know, the next 10 hours critical, the next week is going to be pretty bad. And then perhaps, you know, the waves, the kind of three metre high waves will begin to subside. So that's that's the immediate impact on the war. Look, I think, you know, no one's claiming responsibility, as it were, but I think on balance, it's pretty clear whose interests it was in to to do this and i think it's clearly a, a, a defensive measure a desperate defensive measure but but in a way a sensible defensive measure by the russians so as all our listeners know the dnipro has basically been the front line so from south of Zaporizhia all the way down to the mouth of dnipro basically it was a watery front line no man's land was the river uh, the ukrainians controlled the right bank the russians the left bank now it's been there's been shelling back and forth now below the Above the dam, in this enormous reservoir uh, that Francis was describing, you know, two, three, four, five miles across in places, the idea of, you know, putting an amphibious landing across there is, or was, pretty far-fetched to say the least. Below the dam, you had stretches of river that were only about, I say only because it's still a pretty formidable obstacle, but we're talking 300, 400 metres. There had been a lot of Ukrainian activity with riverine boats. We know they put special forces across the river. They'd made little bridgeheads in the marshlands, that, that low-lying marshland we were just talking about on the left bank. And over the past month or so, there have been quite intense battles way down, much further downriver from the dam. In the delta, there's a bunch of low-lying islands. And the Ukrainians and the Russians have been fighting for control of those islands quite intensively for well, I wouldn't want to put a, a date on it but like, I was there I was in the area roughly a month ago now and those those fights were audible and you know clearly quite intense and it definitely looks as if however unlikely it might seem the Ukrainians at least wanted to make it plausible or make it appear like they were able to or perhaps preparing to put an amphibious landing across the river as part of the counteroffensive. Now, whether or not they were actually going to risk that, because it was obviously going to be risky, I think the Russians have pretty much decided, you know, or not, not to risk it, basically. So, so the point of blowing the dam is suddenly a river that was 200, 300 miles, uh, 300 metres across is now, I don't know how big the, flood, the flooding is going to be, but we're going to be talking about kilometres of waterway that would have to be crossed landing areas that the ukrainians would have 
um, done reconnaissance on will be flooded, the bank will have changed, the river flow would have changed. So if the Ukrainians had those plans, the Russians will be hoping that will have massively disrupted that. And and I suppose that that means in turn that that, you know, the, the river Dnipro, the idea of resuming war of movement across the river is even more far-fetched. So we can expect uh, the war of movement to perhaps be concentrated, you know, on the left bank in Zaporizhia and, and Donetsk and, and uh, Kharkiv and Luhansk regions. And there's a couple of other things to think about. On the Crimean Canal, I'm personally a bit sceptical about, you know, the immediate humanitarian impact of that because Crimea survived relatively well that while that canal was was blocked by the Ukrainians for about eight years on drinking water. What it will do is have a big impact on agricultural water used across southern occupied Ukraine. So a knock on very large knock on effect for well, for farming, basically, which is not a direct impact on the war and, and, and the conduct of combat operations, but it's a big problem for whoever's going to end up controlling that territory going forward. And then, you, of course, you have the nuclear power station. I think, as Francis was saying, you know, it doesn't look like that is in that is critically endangered at this moment, but it certainly complicates many things. Thank you very much, Roland. Tetiana or Francis, would you like to add anything to that? Well, I'm happy to come up with some historical parallels later on, and I'll talk about those. But I just think if we're talking about the impact of this, I want to underline the point I said earlier on, which I think there will be many people who have adjusted to a kind of idea of what this war looks like. They imagine it as fairly frozen, fairly static, and they're anticipating some kind of counteroffensive. This has ruptured that. And Evidently, that will have an impact on the political response within Europe, within the West, and also many people who just aren't following the war as closely as we are, who will think, my goodness, what on earth is going on here? And it will draw their attention to what Russia has done in Ukraine and is doing there and also will make them follow the war again. So there are a lot going to be a lot of consequences of this that are hard to register. But as I say, I think the it's going to be very interesting seeing how this leads to recalculations of how far Russia is able to go to retain the territory it currently has. As I said earlier, there are those who questioned whether they even saw it as completely irrational that Putin, that Russia would try and stage any kind of environmental disaster, nuclear disaster that could in some way freeze the war, that could somehow in, in advantage them on the front line. And yet this is clearly an example of an incident that has huge consequences on Ukraine more broadly and on those places that they currently occupy. And yet they have been willing to do them either to disrupt the narrative of the counteroffensive, which they feel is harmful for their prospects in the war, or because the strategic advantages that we were just describing there. Either way, it's a big step. Some would describe it as an escalation. And so this will lead to, as I say, David, I think quite considerable reassessments over the coming days as to quite how far Russia is willing to go. And I can easily imagine that some will say that this could have negative consequences for Ukraine because they will say, well, actually, we need to take the nuclear threat more seriously from Russia. I'm not saying I think that, but I'm saying that I think there will be some who will be calling for that as a consequence of this. Now, the other side of the coin, of course, is that it gives yet another injection of the moral right 
rightness, superiority that Ukraine has in this war. They were invaded. This would not have happened were it not for the fact that they were attacked by Russia. And it is yet another example of a war crime being perpetrated by the Russian state on Ukrainian people. Now, yes, and as I say, I will come to historical parallels later, this often dams are considered legitimate targets in war. But there are rules as to how you're meant to identify said targets, and those have not been followed. Roland was describing there how nobody was aware that this was going to be taking place on the ground. And so there is a very high likelihood that some people have died as a consequence of this. And that's before you even go into the environmental impacts. So there'll be many people waking up to this war crime this morning and they'll be saying what on earth has happened and their outrage at what is being done and perpetrated on the Ukrainian people will no doubt give an impetus to Ukraine from Western supporters, but also I'm sure amongst the Ukrainians themselves who will say this is yet another example of why Russia cannot be allowed to win this war. Thank you very much, Francis. Tatiana, I saw you unmuted as well when I asked for any further reaction. Would you like to come in? The only thing I want to say that it's pretty clear clear who did it, who destroyed Kofovka Dam. Russia did it and Russian soldiers. And there is no reason for Ukrainian army to destroy the dam because even if you are not a soldier or, or not military affiliated, it's it's obvious that this was like, it's impossible strategically. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for joining us, Tatiana. It was really interesting to hear your reporting. And, and thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, it's a, been a, a, a big day. So thank you so much and best of luck with your reporting in the future. Maidna, you've been on the Ukraine Live blog. For all of our listeners, the Ukraine Live blog on the war we run every single day from the foreign desk. Maidna, you've been obviously following this breaking story all day. Could you talk us through a little bit some of the international reaction and, and in, in Ukraine, Russia, the EU, Britain? What have you been seeing? Yeah, so Zelensky has obviously condemned what he says is a terrorist act and he's condemned Russian forces as terrorists. The foreign ministry has used quite similar language and Zelensky's advisor has said that the world must understand that this is an attempt by terrorists to raise the stakes and scare everyone with a possible nuclear disaster. And now James Cleverly is actually in Ukraine at the moment and he's visiting Kyiv And he's denounced this as a war crime and as an abhorrent act. And he wrote on Twitter that intentionally attacking exclusively civilian infrastructure is a war crime. And he's promised more support for Kyiv and for those affected. And in terms of EU reaction, uh, the EU has condemned the destruction of this dam as a new example of the barbaric aggression by Russia against Ukraine. And it calls it a new sign of escalation. And Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, also blamed Russia for the attack. Maynard, could you talk us through just very quickly what the Russian reaction to this news has been? Yeah, so the Kremlin has claimed that this was actually deliberate sabotage by Kyiv and it's denied that it had anything to do with the attack and it's decisively rejected accusations by both Ukraine and the West that Moscow forces were behind this blast. And Dmitry Peskov has said, we can already unequivocally declare that this was deliberate sabotage by the Ukrainian side. And obviously both sides have traded accusations over who is responsible for this. 
Thank you very much, Maidena. For everybody listening, Maidena is today running the Ukraine Live blog on the Telegraph website and has just run over from the desk just to give us that international reaction update to the news we've heard this morning. So thank you so much, Maidena, for your time and best of luck with the rest of the reporting day. And of course, we'd say to all listeners, do go and follow the Live blog that Maidena and her colleague Genevieve Hall-Allen run every day of, of this war. Thank you very much, Maidena, for joining us. I realise it's the only story, really, that we've been talking about today. So, Francis, why don't you talk us through some of your, your reflections on the news we heard this morning? Well, thanks, David. I was planning on reflecting on the 79th anniversary of D-Day today and how, of course, it sought to liberate swathes of Europe from imperialist aggression. But given the dam, I'm going to discuss other incidents from World War II instead, particularly the destruction of the Dnieper Dam by the Russians in 1941. I discussed that event on the podcast several months ago when theorising about the potential impact of what the destruction of this dam would be. But just to familiarise listeners, what happened was that Stalin's secret police blew up the dam in an attempt to slow the advance of Nazi German troops as they swept through Soviet era Ukraine after Operation Barbarossa. The explosion flooded villages all along the banks of the river. It killed thousands of civilians and military personnel from both sides. After taking over the area, the Germans partially rebuilt the dam, but then two years later, as Soviet forces were pushing them out of Ukraine, Nazi troops blew it up for a second time. So Ukraine is sadly no stranger to such incidents, but neither was Europe during that period. Dams were often the targets of Allied bombing raids, for instance, most famously, of course, the Dambusters Dam raid in 1943. Now, the strategic impact of such attacks has often been contested. But what is undeniable is the disruptive impact. By targeting dams, both sides aim to disrupt hydroelectric power generation, water supply, industrial facilities. In the German context, we know it not only affected Germany's ability to produce war materials, but it also hindered transportation and disrupted communication networks. The floods caused considerable casualties and displaced populations, further disrupting normal life in the affected regions, something that, of course, happened also in Ukraine when the Stalin police destroyed the Dnipro Dam. There was also the psychological impact in both instances. I recall, and I've spoken about this on the podcast, that Armaments Minister Albert Speer referenced in his memoirs the huge impact that the destruction of dams and bombing raids had on the German population during the war. And no doubt that was the same in those areas that suffered this. This is, you know, you've got to imagine it, that the area you're listening to this from suddenly overnight is completely flooded and perhaps even permanently so. This is a really major psychological blow to people who are familiar with these areas. And so I think it's just important to emphasise that. And I think that that's, of course, part of it to try and erode the Ukrainian population's will to resist. But I think, and of course, the strategic calculations, but I think that the the main aim here really is to disrupt and stall the possibilities of Ukraine's advances, just as they appear on the cusp of being launched. 
as well as trying to disrupt the narratives, as I say, that have been formulating around this inevitable Ukrainian counteroffensive that will see vast swathes of territory liberated quickly. This will make that almost impossible in these territories if indeed the counteroffensive was imminent and targeting, targeting it there. Clearly, the Russians did think that this was a core target for Ukraine. Now, I think it's important to emphasize that Russia can only do this once, and I'm sure that Ukraine factored in the possibility of the destruction of the dam into their calculations. But nevertheless, this is, I think, a, a tragic echo, David, on a day when we would normally be commemorating the sacrifice of those who sought to bring about a more peaceful, sovereign Europe. But unfortunately, we've got another echo instead. Thank you very much, Francis. Roland Oliphant, would you like the very final words? Yes, it's a, today seems to be one of those moments when, you know, <laughs> I said yesterday, you know, reality will deliver its drama and, and it and it has, you know, in a very in a very forceful manner. Like that notwithstanding, we, we can you know, there's lots of maps about what will be flooded and, and what will be affected by this. The truth is we don't know. No one's blowing up a dam in Europe for a very, very long time. So again I'd I'd caution everybody not to jump to conclusions about how bad this is going to be and and what the, the the final outcome is we actually we don't know and and nobody knows i think what's what what is actually this is, this is another one of those clichés of war but i think although we don't know the the direct impact on the nuclear power plant or the water supply to crimea or on you know military operations and the upcoming offensive what is absolutely clear is that from this incident it's the the civilian impact is is really really bad that is undeniable and although most of the people who i've got through to today um are living on the higher ukrainian controlled right bank of the dnipro over on the left bank there are also settlements it's it's much lower it's much more difficult to reach people there and i fear you know even if people have avoided being drowned the impact on livelihoods there's there's footage online of homes literally being swept away you know this is going to take years and years to rebuild and and get over this this level of destruction whatever else comes out of this last week i spoke to volodymyr kadigrov founder of the seeds for ukraine initiative after today's story of immense environmental suffering and destruction his organization story offers hope for the future by helping Ukrainian families across the country rebuild their lives. Here's our conversation, and for all of our listeners, there's more information on their initiative in the description for this episode. Vladimir, thank you so much for your time. Could you start just by introducing yourself? Hello, thank you for having me. My name is Vladimir Kadegrov. I'm from Kiev, and I'm kind of strategic consultant designer in my normal life, but now mostly volunteer and social entrepreneur. That's how it goes. So you're involved in this Seeds for Ukraine project. Could you explain what exactly it is and how it started? So a year ago, a little bit more, last spring, it was the second or third month of the Russian invasion. When the Kiev region territories were liberated, we saw what happened in Bucha, you know, what happened in Borodyanka, in Kiev region. And we were shocked and we, we didn't know how, you know, there were so many people to help. But at the same time, it was the season for the gardens. And in the rural areas, like 99% of Ukrainians have their gardens, they do something. 
And and the logistics were totally broken. And there, a lot of people said that they took everything, including the seeds, or, or the, just everything was burned or like that. So we decided, of course, it's important to help somehow right now, but also it would be great to empower people and give them something, you know, some tools to grow the food for the communities so they can have, uh, you know, someone will have some work, someone will have something to eat for the year. And it actually goes like fantastic. We didn't expect there was so many support around the world from from very different countries last year we managed to help about 10,000 families which is about 30,000 people around them maybe more so it's it's pretty impressive for a small initiative and this year we're developing we, we receive a lot of requests for help so we decide to to continue could you just describe to us what the process is exactly? So people support, they send money, they buy seeds. What happens then? Where do they go? So we're wowing. So we're making kind of informational support for for that. Yeah, and we, we, we were supported also by, for example, Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And they just tweeted something. For example, last year, Ministry of Foreign Affairs made a tweet. It was retweeted by Le Monde, one brilliant guy from Lille. A farmer uh, wrote it and decided he gathered he has about 100 people working. He get five people who said we want to help. And they were packing the seeds for, for this initiative and sending like 10 boxes of the seeds to Poland. The look Again, logistics is totally broken, right? So it was a humanitarian uh, warehouse in Poland near the border. And then everything was packed there and sent to Kiev where volunteers take and pack the seeds into family boxes. So it means 20 packages of different varieties like corn, tomato, cucumber, some greens, legumes, everything, you know. <laughs> so it's one family seed. So And then we receive from our partners around the regions where that were mostly damaged by, by war. We received inquiries for like, okay, we have a community for 500 families that need those kind of support. So when we, we send it to, to those people and then send us back reports, photos and a lot of things from, from the people. And then something wonderful happens. Like, for example, one community then said that in the end of the season, they managed to make like 4,000 extra cans, the cans for, for tomatoes and cucumbers, like three liter. And they send it to the front line. So it was like wow. extra from the seeds that that we got. Yeah, it's it's just one example of how it works. You mentioned earlier that lots of um, Ukrainians living in rural areas often have a garden and will grow lots of their own not, produce. It's not not so often. Something it's, I saw. It's, it's it's like well, everybody. Yeah, everybody. It's it's something I saw when traveling across the country, sort of last last year as well. Would you talk a little bit about that? Why why is that the case, and what is the relationship between Ukrainians and and, and a love of gardening and growing their own? You know, food? it's it's historical and cultural thing. It's a, it has a positive way because we have strong connection with the land. It's like it's how how it works. And the second, the bad side of all that, it's like we have something on DNA. For the last several centuries, we were like tried to be killed every 10 years. You've just checked the, the history, you know, the, fem- the big famine and, the, and then mass killings and then mass departures to Siberia. So it's imp- imperial stuff, which we couldn't in 
Soviet Union, there was not possible you know, to reflect, to make history, to make studies about that, right? And we didn't have those capacity during the first 30 years of independence. Just we started to do that. We started to do our mm. homework to understand why we're like that, right? So it's for, for Ukrainian, there is a lot of jokes. Uh, like in Europe, there are some jokes about British, about Belgium, <laughs> about French people, yeah? So about Ukrainians, you can always say that, you know, when, when you get plenty of land, but you need a little bit more for beetroots. So it's, it's like that. We, we, need, we just need to, to, to do some more in case something will happen. And last year, it really happened. Just looking through some of the uh, examples of what your your work has, has has achieved, I got some notes talking about a woman in the Kiev region who was tortured during the occupation last year, and she was involved in in your program, and it helps her regrow lots of her crops. And now this year, she's applying for the project again. Would you talk a little bit more about her? What's what's her story? Yeah, it's it's just one of uh, the like thousands who were under occupation, and just she was tortured for for nothing. And like the, her hand were beaten with hammer, but right after the, this village were, were was liberated, it's just one hour from Kiev. So for your understanding, <clears throat> she said that okay, we will do our gardens. And I think the project is not just about the food, which is all which is really important. But you know, this kind of seeding, this is very much helpful to mental health because after you've been lived for like months or two months or three months under occupation on half year, like in Kherson, for example, and there are regions who are still under occupation. You need somehow to deal with your mental health, right? And uh, I think that that this connection to Earth, this is something crucial in, in staying alive and mentally, uh, you know, strong. And those people there in rural areas, everybody are about organic farming. It's a small small plots like small plots okay it's like half hectare it seems like a small plot in in ukraine like literally i mean half of hectare it's 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 a small plot so they're doing this and i think that helps really stay staying alive there was just one another story which would be good to talk about a little bit in deoccupied Kharkiv, a school in a village where there was also a, a greenhouse involved as well. So you're you're not just doing seeds. There's equipment and infrastructure as well. Yes, we're doing this uh, this year. We start to do greenhouses. Our team member proposed this idea, and this is really goes very well because of huge amount of the mined land. So the agriculture-minded plant in Ukraine for the moment is like twice size of Austria. For, to understand that it's just the mine, and it will take a lot of time to manage it, right? So we decide that for communities we can do some more, and we can provide the greenhouses. And for example, in in, in this village, it's a school. They were also under occupation and they will do the the growing of vegetables of greens together with the with the children or students in the school right and also it's i think that it's not just for having some vegetables but also for community for for their like happiness because you know when, when you're when you're making community when you're doing something this is much more than just grow some food can i ask um Obviously, you know, your love of growing things and living things really comes across. Do you, do you have a garden? Do you garden yourself? What, 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 yes. what do you have in, do you <laughs> yes, have in your garden? 
Yeah, that's 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 how it started exactly. That's how it started. Yes, I'm just just uh, I'm like four years ago. I go into gardening like a practice, which I there is a, also a, a amazing book by a British writer. She's a psychologist. It's it's garden therapy, or I, I don't know how it's in in the right translation. Maybe it's uh, but uh, her husband. I know that her husband was a gardener for the Queen Elizabeth. Wow. Yes, and I think that's how she got into this. And she wrote this amazing book about how how does gardening affects your mental health, how can you regenerate? And you know, in Ukraine, the most problematic thing, except ra- the Russian terrorist state, the the second issue is for the moment is uh, mental health, like totally, uh, like everybody. You cannot just to understand. For the last month, we have nineteen air attacks huge like last night it was 54 drones or something yesterday it was 11 ballistic rockets attacking kiev and we we are joking that we we at least we managed to sleep eight hours but it took us four days so it's it's like there are so many children there are so many veterans there, there so many people who have ptsd and and different minor major issues so i think like I don't remember the name of the woman, but the, the book is amazing. And if she can hear us, I would be happy to invite her to, to combine the, the, our garden project together with the, with the huge need of mental rehabilitation for the nation. So what's in, what's in your garden at the moment? What are you growing? Like basic stuff, like tomatoes, corn, uh, and some maybe like I have some uh, Bamiya, if you know, <laughs> and and but batat also the sweet potato, yeah, it's, and a lot of flowers. My 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 wife loves flowers, so it's 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 pretty. Yeah, and and it's, it is totally rural area that a lot of a lot of birds, no network, and we we when we can do that, we just we're blessed that we have this small plot that we can go there and not hear the air alert and the bombs but but we're actually living in kiev we work in kiev our community our friends our parents are in kiev so if we can do that once per per week it's amazing but usually less what are your going back to seeds for ukraine what are your plans this year and in the next few months what projects are you looking at like for for the seeds we're we're done for this season we got quite a lot we're finishing our delivery to to communities we came from we were in Kherson in Kharkiv region this is our focus the occupied territories and uh, but we we have a dream a target for this season we want to install 100 greenhouses it's a small actually like okay small 30 square meters greenhouses around the around the communities in Kharkiv region and in in Kherson to see actually what will happen, what will they do with that. So it definitely gives people like some work, it gives some space to work together, and it gives some, you know, food because it's it's a problem. I got from, from Kherson and 90% of people working in Agra, they're having, for example, one, one farmer has 10 hectares, so he can do only a half of a hectare because of the mining. And all his uh, tools, all his techniques, they were damaged or destroyed or stolen. So it's pretty unfair. And those people who just have the most positive work 
that can be growing something. And it's quite opposite what was done to them. It's just so brutal. It's a it's a quite a good idea to help them help themselves and their communities, not just give them some cans of beans and and cans of meat, because the, the, there will be a logistic problem. There will the, you, you cannot imagine how it's like look like in in, the, in those regions. But giving them tools, it's like giving them people hope, and they they're very much thankful, very much inspired with with this and. We want to see how this experiment will, will work and what will they do with those greenhouses, which can work for more than 10 years. If anybody wants to join, there is a website of Seeds of Ukraine. And like, if anybody wants to install in some of the region Owen greenhouse named by the person or company, you're very well. We will absolutely add add the website to the show notes. So any listeners who are interested, please do go there and and check out the website there. Vladimir, is there anything um, we haven't spoken about that you think is important for our listeners to to understand or to know? I think that it's important to say thanks to all the British people about their brave and very, very strong position about Ukraine. And we feel it very much because, you know, it's, 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 the leadership example of like when when somebody are saying values and there are actions about that so we 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 see that we feel that and we want to it's it's priceless that's that's what i want to say well thank you very much for talking to us and best of luck with your thank with your harvest this thank year. you <laughs> thank you good luck ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.